Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ravick. Thank you for joining me for this first podcast of 2024. A little over a year ago, Australia was uh, shocked by the brutal murder of two police officers and a, um, a civilian in a place called William Billum up in Queensland. That particular uh, incident uh, has brought a focus on extremism, has brought a focus on the consequences of people believing particular ideologies and how individuals fall into a, a political and ideological rut to the point where they're prepared to kill. There is a book out now called The William Biller Shootings that looks at the William Biller um, scenario, but also explores a range of other themes related to extremism and radicalisation. The author, John Kerb, who's done a fair bit of writing in the area of true crime, has delved into the William Biller situation and joins me to talk about that and then possible uh, issues for policymakers going forward. John, thanks for uh, making time today. Thank you. Now, before we get into the, the substance of what we learn from uh, the situation and what policymakers and governments can look at, can you, in, in a brief summary, what are we dealing with here? What happened? A routine welfare check for a general duties constable is not much more usual mundane sort of work than making a welfare check. Uh, it was not the first one that had been made, um, but on the 12th of December, 2022, uh, two carloads of police from uh, Tara and Chinchilla police stations converged on 151 Waynes Road, Weambilla, a remote um, place uh, in, in what's called the Weambilla Blocks, um, a rural setting, to say the least. Um, they parked, got out, and uh, the two car Tara cops, Matthew Arnold and Rachel McCrow, making their way towards the building, the farm buildings, um, were shot, and a hail of bullets uh, wounded uh, a constable from Randall, Randall Kirk from Chinchilla, and uh, Keely Brow, uh, Bruff, sorry, um, escaped physical injury and, and got into the scrub. Shooting continued. It seems that the uh, killers went to the down bodies of uh, Matthew Arnold first and shot him with his Glock, took his radio and his gun, then killed... Um, in an execution style, Rachel McCrow, and uh, fired an awful lot of rounds at Randall Kirk. He managed to get to his vehicle and get to a place where he could call the cavalry, so to speak, to get back up. Meantime, Keely Brow um, was hiding in long grass. It was lit. Uh, it was an attempt to uh, flush her out and shoot her. And uh, the next significant event was the arrival of a whole lot of country cops from Tara, Chinchilla and Miles, the equidistant police stations. They arrived and pinned down 
and shooters and uh, retrieved the bodies and held the fort until such time as uh, from Brisbane, Pole Air had helicopters in the air above and CERT uh, was on the road. CERT is the, uh, it, it is the uh, SWAT team name for uh, that Queenslanders use. Um, a siege situation developed and uh, at, some at some stage, the vehicle, the armoured vehicle from which the negotiator would be sitting trying to negotiate a settlement uh, and a surrender, it was shot up and um, the decision was taken to uh, shoot to kill the three perpetrators. The three perpetrators being Gareth Train, his brother Nathaniel Train, and Gareth's then wife, Stacy Train. Now, sorry, as well as that, when the smoke went up, a concerned neighbour, Alan Dare, and his friend uh, went to the property to see what was going on. It's obviously that grass fires and bushfires are in no one's good interest in rural areas. And he was shot probably while filming. Uh, Alan Dare was shot. And um, so that made three victims and three perpetrators all dead that day. Okay, now one of the core issues, obviously, having gone through the just the basic, you know, the threadbare outline which we have. Um, if I can enter into the discussion this way, um, what did you make of the? The, the mindset of the trans when you began looking at this in more depth um, because it would you know the rationale behind them doing what they were doing on that property and the preparations they were making to any normal reasonable person is um, curious to use a euphemism. I would say bizarre, still a euphemism. It's weird. It's extremely strange. Now, what, what, what did you find when you started looking at it? What were the what were the underlying what what were the underlying themes that you drew that, that you know revealed themselves as you began to reflect on this and write about it? First of all, psychologically. Gareth Train, um, the, the older brother, was um, a dominating personality, a bully, um, arrogant, and uh, a great believer in the stuff he was reading online. His brother, Nathaniel, had had a, a massive heart attack, which seems to have affected his uh, judgment and, and, and his mind and his behavior uh, and changed it greatly and Stacy trained was a sort of spear carrier for for Gareth so that's the psychological background Gareth got deeply into uh, online conspiracy theories and uh, picked and patched up a kind of uh, bizarre um, 
worldview. Um, uh, there was no white nationalist about it, and there was no um, uh, Australian nationalist stuff about it, uh, but there was a, <clears throat> a great deal of hatred and contempt for people, meat suits. Um, the, uh, as for the record of Australian killings, they're all um, false flags, including Martin Bryant in, in, in Port Arthur, which is very common among these people. And um, with these bizarre um, background, he um, borrowed from sovereign citizen type propaganda um, and doomsday prepper a bit from there and so on and so forth. And they stitched together a situation which together with pre-millennial apocalyptic apocalyptic um, Christian biblical uh, forecasts, prophecies, um, I think they went into it to kill and to be killed and they died smug. They'd done something that was worthwhile and that they would eventually, in the rapture, rise from the dead as um, we Christians do under this bizarre cult. Now, the, 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 the situation, as you, and I've, you've described that in the, in the book, um, as you were to the belief that they, they must have, in your view, died having thought they'd done something just and proper in accordance with their the belief system that they'd um, developed uh, over a period of time. Um, these things don't happen by accident, do they? They, 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 they you know, there is always some form of um, connection or sharing of views and and information. There was uh, a certain amount of exchange happening, wasn't there, between an individual in the states and uh, the trains, wasn't there? Yeah. In fact, the last while they were under siege, their last message was to Dan Geronimo's bones in the United States. Um, and they said goodbye to them and uh, we're going to meet him in heaven, so to speak, or after the rapture. And uh, he uh, was the he seemed to be the closest um, compadre, if you like, that they had. They certainly had no local connections at all much. You know, they're not seen socialising, they're hardly seen shopping. Um, they're extremely isolated, um, you know, upper galley, so, so to speak. And um, they were they basically fested it. The three of them just fested over a couple of months, a few months. One of the interesting things to me, and I suspect it probably is to you, is how how we sort of we tell the stories of a particular instance, and we forget that um, it, we. In, in a situation like the one you describe in the book quite well, we confront something that is extreme. 
um in the you know in its in the outcome but also in, in the ideology but not everything not everyone that believes kooky things goes out of their way to um to commit you know murder do they no and uh... Not only, not only is it extremely rare for them to do so, um, it's very rare for them to um, get, it's relatively relatively rare of them, to get out on the street and protest. It's uh, relatively um, a small number of them that ever get offline with their opinions. And, yeah, and, they're, and, and I must say, geeing one another up and agreeing a lot. Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me, having studied the area of extremism and radicalization is that while we're focused on particular events, what we sometimes forget because of the way things are reported and because of the the fact that there's this wall of sound and imagery while something is contemporary, that we forget that we're actually looking at the a an instance that um is awful. But when we're talking about radicals and radicalization and activity of this kind, you know, the research tells us very few people actually, you know, take that step of a radical, converting that radical view into action. Did any, in your research, did you find any other, any um, other kind of example of, where this kind of thing had um, had occurred, um, and that other people have sort of picked up and run with it. Because this one, this one in William Villa, is uh, is one out of the box. I think. I think so too. Um, it's true that the uh, online radical radicalization has taken people to. Um, to do extreme things, as instances in the book of um, a seemingly quite normal father changed, took his um, daughter from the state he lived in in the United States to Mexico and killed her because he thought she was going to turn into a reptile. I mean, I mean that's just bizarre. But um, <clears throat> if we look at the number of people who believe that there are reptiles running the world, there's many, great many of them, but not not very many of them kill their daughter to stop it from happening. Yeah, I think the in one of the and anyone listening to this will be able to pick up some research by experts in radicalisation. Um, most some of the most useful stuff has been written by Clark McCauley and Sophia Moskalenko. The book, their book on uh, called Friction. Uh, is useful, and there's a range of other books they've got, but there is a paper in particular that came out in 2021 where they talk about research done on extremism and they've, they're grappling with the way governments should deal with things like, you know, Islamist um, ideology or QAnon or, you know, far right. And the conclusion they come to, based on their research, is that if you police ideas, if you police thought, you're going to be wasting a lot of resources. You need to find a way of policing those that are actually doing 
uh, or more likely to do harm. Um, <clears throat> when you bathe, as you have in, in, in a packed pattern and in a in a bunch of reading, looking at this uh, area of extremism and radicalisation, what are the things that you believe, John, a policymaker or policymakers should be looking at uh, when they're dealing with the area? I wish I could answer that question. Um, <laughs> the, uh, to, 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 to sort out the, um, the weevils uh, from the flower is very difficult. And, um, but um, we're getting, you know, we, we, I suppose we're accumulating more and more of so real-life actor-outers uh, and perhaps something will emerge, but, you know, the blood toll will be awful. But that, by that, that's the recommendations of the two scholars you mentioned in um, their work on QAnon uh, perspectives on opinion and uh, activity. Um, yeah, um, they're... Their work's quite uh, quite solid, and other other academics have also indicated to me in the past that you know, the actual problem of people who act on belief is smaller than is you know generally thought about. And part of the part of the issue, I guess, is media coverage. Now, they're rather aside from the ideological stuff, which we've kind of covered off. There are some other practical steps that have been uh, considered and looked at by governments in Australia to try and minimise the, the ability of people to carry firearms between states, etc. Um, do you think the National Firearms Register would help minimise the the kind of thing we saw happen here? Well, um, if there was a register and it was routinely consulted, the uh, cops from Tara and, and Chinchilla would have um, been prepared. They wouldn't have been ambushed. They'd have gone there or not gone there or done it differently, perhaps, if they looked it up. But I do think the National Firearms Register should be uh, applauded as a... I mean, the previous uh, uh, pr previous Premier of Western Australia called it a no-brainer. He wanted to go ahead. And it is going ahead. It's a bit behind time, but it's, it's still going ahead. There's an awful lot of things... To make the uh, to make the national um, gun ownership situation not state by state but uh, a national one, there's a whole lot of things like silences, uh, flash uh, flash retardant devices, and all sorts of things that uh, have got to be either in or out, and so on and so forth. I once thought when I was doing it, I thought it'd be a good idea if the uh, First time every new rifle was imported, or perhaps even made here, it could be test fired uh, and uh, 3D, the bullet 3D modelled by the police and put on a data system so that um, bullets from that rifle could be. Um, if, 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 I'm talking about rifles, things with uh, rifling in them um, could be perhaps identified, but it turns out that that's beyond the, beyond the reach of modern ballistics. Hmm. I guess we have a couple more areas to touch on before we um, leave this particular situation. Um, uh, and I guess when, when you dive into 
something like this. There are things that um, you encounter that are sort of depressing, and there are other things that give you hope. What are the, what are the things that most disappointed you about? Or did you find the most disturbing about the situation when you first began to write about it? The terrible, horrible unfairness of two people going about their routine job and uh, just meeting basically hatred in the form of um, bullets and shotgun blasts. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it is extremely rare, and that's one of the reasons why it's so horrible. Um, doesn't happen too often, thank God. Is there anything in all of this that you've written about from which we can, as a community, derive any kind of hope? Well, there's one peculiar thing. In this country, you know, literary men and women, um, when they've done everything else uh, in the in the Western canon, often write about Troy and the Troy legends, you know, Ulysses' journey or the siege at um, Troy. And that sort of thing. It's very common. And uh, but in Australia, if you've got an illustrious literary career, you end up writing about a man called Ned Kelly, who's a cop killer. And I think, you know, about time we took a bit of a look at the Ned Kelly myth. It's, uh, he's, 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 he's one of the least admirable people I can think of. And um, shooting cops in cold blood and planning to kill more of them is, is just awful. And... Uh, we need to take a look at ourselves. The um, there there has been some extensive work done on Ned Kelly. If we can expand briefly on that, by range of authors. Um, there was one book that I looked at not so long ago that looked at the clearly de-romanticizing Kelly. And essentially saying that Kelly, given the circumstances, given his manifesto and given his activities, was probably one of the more prominent um, terrorists we've, we've had in the country. Well, uh, I mean, three dead cops and the plan to bring down a train full of, well, you know, engineers, firemen, cops, black trackers, um, horses. Um, the, the hero of the, the, the hero of the Kelly's last stand is the is the school teacher who conned the Kellys into letting them go back to do something or other, and who got home, got a red rag and a lantern, and went out and uh, stopped the train from coming over the bridge. I mean, there's a, a clever man, brave man, public service, public service of you know, heroic kind. And we've all forgotten his name, including myself, unfortunately. Well, what did his name simply, if I recall correctly, was it Thomas Kerner? Yeah, that's right. His name was Kerner. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's interesting that we go back to that point of Ned Kelly, given the circumstances of William Biller, um, given the, you know, the, the contemplation of a range of things, that Kelly had in mind. It's it's almost as if 
as you say, we need to take a good look at ourselves in terms of who we who we glorify and who we you know build folklore around. Well, the you know if you're looking for heroism um, at William Biller, as I point out, you know uh, SWAT teams are not exactly what you'd call uh, the humblest of men, and they <laughs> don't look at us, look at them, and point it to the country cops who went out. You know, we still don't know how many long arms they had. We don't know much about it at all. But from the Miles Police Station, from Chinchilla and Tara, they sealed that area and you know, made it possible for Keeley Braff to come out of the burnt grass um, and uh, contain the thing until such time as the, as the cavalry, the big, you know, the big guns got there. Um, there's, there's heroism there. We can admire these people uh, without any trouble at all. But they went to the aid of their companions and they did it without being idiot heroes of any kind. They had no woundings or fatalities or anything like that. And they contained the trains. And uh, that's something to really admire. Yeah. I've been talking to John Kirk, who's the author of a new book called The Wing and Billy Shootings, um, the true story of a long-prepared ambush by religiously motivated conspiracy theorists. The book is now available. It's been published by wilkinsonpublishing.com.au. If you're interested in the in the whys and wherefores of of what went on in William Billant, by all means, have a bit of a look at that when you've got a chance. John, thank you so much for having taken the time to chat with me today. Thanks for the invitation, Tom. Absolute pleasure.